this week on the Back Table Podcast. The biggest challenge, I think, is really those people who went through their training and didn't get a lot of experience and want to or need to because of where they are to get the experience to do stroke. And I think that's really probably one of our biggest challenges because where are they going to get the hands-on training? Where are they going to get the experience? Through the stroke courses, we're able to provide the cognitive and we're even able to provide some hands-on in the models and the simulators. And as those get better and better, it gets closer and closer to taking care of an actual patient. But it's really getting that experience, treating patients, getting the hands-on. And I think that's really where one of our biggest challenges is. Welcome to the Backtable Podcast, your source for all things endovascular or otherwise minimally invasive. You can find all previous episodes of the podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or backtable.com. Subscribe to the podcast, leave us a review, or reach out to us on Twitter or email to let us know how we can make this a more valuable resource for the endovascular community. First, a quick word from our sponsors. A decade ago, Rapid AI harnessed AI to revolutionize stroke care. Now they're bringing that same innovation to aneurysm and pulmonary embolism. This AI-powered, clinically-driven workflow platform enables care teams to accelerate triage and treatment decisions and improve operational efficiency to achieve better patient outcomes. Rapid AI, where AI meets patient care. Now, back to the show. Welcome, everybody, to the Backtable VI podcast. My name is Venu Vadlamudi. I'm an interventional and neurointerventional radiologist and Happy to welcome good friend, partner in a lot of things within SIR and others, uh, Marty Radvani, uh, who's down in Miami, Florida. And Marty, I'll let you introduce yourself a little bit, and then we'll jump into the topic of the day, which is in and around uh, stroke. Thanks, Vanu, for the kind introduction. I am Marty Radvani. I'm also a dual-trained neuro and body IR, and I have been really focusing uh, on trying to... Uh, has pushed the cause uh, for IRs and stroke, and it's something that's kind of a passion of mine, and I believe very strongly. And and uh, I think we're well. We'll get to how things are going as we uh, go through the uh, podcast. Likewise, uh, you know, as Marty said, you know, passion for stroke and uh, stroke care, access to care, a lot of things we can jump into in this podcast. So I think to start off the conversation, you know, maybe we'll take a look at the sort of state of affairs and you know, the middle of 2022 in regard to uh, stroke and stroke in general for those uh, who may be less familiar as far as uh, endovascular therapies and, and where things stand. And then we can, you know, maybe morph into, you know, where do interventional radiologists fit into that equation? Marty, you have some thoughts as far as, you know, where we are in 2022? Well, I think we made a lot of progress since we really uh, kick-started things, I would say, back in 2015, 2016 timeframe. Um, you know, that's when we did the reboot on the uh, stroke course with SIR. The neuroservice line kind of got really well-established. And I think we've had quite a few initiatives in that time that are finally starting to come to fruition. And it's kind of gratifying to look back over the last few years and realize that we have been making some progress. I think one of the big things is just as far as training, uh, for the residents and uh, fellows, that that has cerebral geography is once again part of the required training for IRs, which I I think that's just bread and butter. When I went through training, it was part of my training, and I think it's it's important, and I'm happy to see that it's now again a requirement because, as you and I have seen, you know, when you leave the ivory towers and get out to the community, who gets asked to do? a lot of cerebral angiography and it's the IRs. Yeah, exactly. Exactly right. You know, I think, you know, in this last several years, specifically 2015 onwards, we know that this big paradigm change in terms of stroke care and endovascular therapies and, you know, it's really become, of course, a standard of care in a lot of cases and certainly a lot of data coming, you know, rapid fire showing the benefit of stroke thrombectomy and you know, varying situations, you know, we're starting to see data around low aspects or low NIH, you know, going for more distal lesions. And so uh, all the more reason, you know, having, you know, a cadre of folks who can provide that care, you know, good educational opportunities for them is very important. So uh, certainly been a pleasure to work with you on a lot of these, you know, different aspects and projects. And at the same time, as he said, you know, really good to see SIR focusing the 
energy and effort toward, you know, neurointervention and stroke and stroke care so that the current generation of folks who are in practice and then of course future generations can, you know, really have both the opportunity and even from formal education, kind of bringing some of that back into the training paradigm. I've had, you know, an interesting perspective over the last several months, been doing some locums coverage, you know, really kind of all throughout the country and have been finding that there are a lot of practices out there that, you know, really are reliant on interventional radiologists to provide stroke care. And there's really, you know, certainly areas that have, you know, a lot of need and and the geography doesn't always, you know, allow for patients to find these, you know, larger tertiary centers and, you know, have formal neurointerventionalists on 24-7. You know, many practices may have some access or, you know, one person out of a few, uh, and that's great. But, you know, the reality is that in order to provide stroke care to as many people as possible, I think it does require interventional radiologists to be part of that conversation. Along those lines, Marty, and certainly you've been at this from the stroke and neurointerventional standpoint and with SIR even longer than me, can you kind of give us maybe a little bit of, if you will, a, a historical perspective, you know, on going back to things like the Klotz course and then where you see things today? Let's say most recently we just finished up the 2022 SIR meeting in Boston, including a stroke course. So uh, what, what are your thoughts there? It was interesting. You know, as I was preparing for uh, this year's annual meeting in the stroke course, I was looking back through what had actually happened with SIR and, you know, so forth. And looking back at the program, it was interesting to me to see that back in 2000, we had big, big names, Jacques Dion, among others, who were speaking at what was at that time Skiver, but uh, the SIR annual meeting. And to see how things are moving forward over time, you know, it's kind of ebbing and flowing, so to speak. The Klotz course came into fruition, and it was a great course. I, I did not have the uh, good fortune of attending it. I heard it was brutal from the sense that uh, you got locked in a hotel room for, I think, I can't remember, it was three or five days, and it was, it was very intense. Since then, you know, our tools have improved. As I said, we were, I was able to reinvigorate a uh, stroke training course for interventional radiologists with Jeff Carpenter, and that was back in, uh, I think the first course was in 2016. And we had started that going. And at that time, we were very pleasantly surprised. I think we had about 70 participants in the course, which was a very pleasant surprise that there were that many IRs practicing. And we really maintained that kind of a uh, attendance throughout the courses that we had been running. And then you joined the team and uh, we've continued having the stroke course. So we even had our brief foray pre-COVID into a more in-depth course uh, at the ACR Learning Center, which you know, it was a two-day course, and we had about, again, about 65, 70 people coming to that course from the U.S. and Canada, and there were, you know, IRs, neuro-IRs, even diagnostic radiologists who were there to learn about stroke imaging, and then those who, interventionalists for more in-depth uh, discussions about the actual interventional procedures at that time. You know, COVID came along, kind of slowed everybody down for a couple of years, and we all went to our web meetings and we actually were able to maintain some sort of a curriculum for uh, IRs uh, with the assistance of SIR. And we had the courses that continued then and we had the quarterly stroke uh, case conference, which really, I think, helped bring people together through COVID when we really weren't meeting face to face. And then, you know, just recently, you and I were up in Boston, we were doing the stroke course again. It was nice seeing everybody in person. And I think uh, we're coming around. I think that that offering is going to continue to uh, expand. And uh, I know that we've discussed uh, growing it a little bit, you know, as, as things move forward. What would you like to see, you know, for interventional radiologists in and around stroke education opportunities? What would be your, your dream state? Well, it would be great to be able to grow the stroke course. And as you well know, because we've been working on this for a while, it's, uh, we've been doing it in conjunction with the annual meeting. And I think eventually to break it away, just like several of the other courses, the Y90 course, the Learn course, if we could have developed to the point where it's a freestanding course, I think that would be amazing. And I think to incorporate imaging, because we know 
that, you know, imaging is a very important part of it, just from the diagnostic standpoint for even diagnostic radiologists and then for interventionalists, expand upon the training and teaching that we can offer to them. And I think what would be fantastic if we are able to get to the point where we have more hands-on work that's uh, supported by industry and we can do these more advanced workshops using flow models as well as the uh, simulators and then even proctoring uh, remotely using uh, several of the systems that are, I don't want to be kind of agnostic there, but there are several of uh, these remote proctoring platforms that are available. And if it could grow to the point where, you know, you can phone a friend. I mean, right now, when you train someplace, when you leave and you have questions, especially during the first couple of years, you're calling back to the mothership all the time asking, okay, what do I do with this? And to be able to create an organized group of people and to offer kind of that ability to phone a friend for interventionalists who are having a challenging case, I think that would kind of really be the pie in the sky. Great. And, and I think, you know, hopefully things will continue to progress toward that goal of potentially having a a separate stroke education course and, you know, being able to offer more educational opportunities, including, you know, hands-on and potentially things like remote or teleproctoring and advice, you know, phone a friend, as you called it. To kind of a little bit change gears here, you know, I wanted to get your thoughts on the, the recent paper published in JVIR, you know, looking at stroke outcomes in, in centers that had interventional and neurointerventional radiologists, kind of your, your thoughts on that, what are potential implications? I guess with regards to uh, the article that you mentioned in JBIR, I think it kind of reaffirms what many of us know. I mean, your experience as well, traveling around the country doing locums, there are a lot of IRs out there doing good work. You know, the uh, invited editorial pointed out some specific things and certain limitations of the study, which almost any study is going to have limitations of one sort or another. You know, every result is going to be discussing who should be doing what. And, you know, as interventionalists, we have seen this so many times. I mean, rewind, you know, I'm going back a little further before my beginning into IR. But if you go back to coronary interventions, radiology was involved there and then kind of faded away from that. Then we had the whole thing in the late 90s, early 2000s with vascular surgery. Fast forward now, it's in the neuro world. And, you know, interventionalists have been at the forefront you know, from the radiology background, have been at the forefront of these endovascular interventions for a long, long time. And, you know, they have the experience, they have the training, and clearly each of these different vascular territories have its own specifics and you need to be trained in those areas. But the fact is, IRs are out there doing stroke, they're doing a large percentage of it. We think potentially as much as 20% of the acute ischemic stroke work is being performed by interventional radiologists in the United States without fellowship training in neurointerventional radiology. And they're doing a good job. I think, you know, I'm going to go off on the side here, but just the whole training pathway. Um, you know, we've, we've seen that um, there's been discussion that started several years ago about alternate training pathways for radiologists that would um, make training as far as the duration of the training commensurate with other specialties such as neurosurgery and neurology. And there's been a lot of discussion of an alternate training pathway for IRs, those who have either completed an IR residency or an IR fellowship. And if during that time period, they can acquire the clinical background, the six months of clinical neurology, neurosurgery, neurointensive care that's really required to take care of these patients, and then also have enough of, from the imaging side, six months of uh, diagnostic neuroradiology during the residency period, that then potentially they could go directly into neurointerventional training without the need for doing another year, a year or two of diagnostic neuroradiology. And so I think that discussion has already happened. I know there are programs there that have already started adopting this paradigm. And I think that's fantastic for radiology that now there's a second pathway for radiologists to go into this area. But what's even more important about that is that interventional radiology fellows and IR residents are starting to get this experience. And there are programs where they're graduating and having performed 30 or more cases, you know, which I think is, is amazing. I mean, I remember as, and I was doing my fellowship, we used to do a lot of carotid angiography 
and uh, even carotid stenting early on. And it was just a fantastic experience. And now that, you know, the people in training, now the fellows in training and residents are getting this experience again, I think it's exactly what needs to be happening. Yeah, that's great. And, you know, I think my takeaway from the paper and full disclosure, I was one of the co-authors, but exactly, you know, in the intent, the background, you know, behind the idea of the paper was to really kind of put it out there, what we felt was probably happening, as you alluded to, that IRs are out there. You know, we certainly, you and I and others, you know, have also looked at that and asked that question, trying to get an understanding of how many interventional radiologists are involved in stroke care throughout the country and by some estimations, perhaps around 20%. And to follow up on that, the number of interventionalists doing it, but also what's their outcomes? What are the data and quality? And this at least gave some some sampling of that to get some idea of you know what's going on out there of course to your point about the commentary article that came you know forth and of course any paper as you said will have limitations but i think it was important to at least get some data out there something to showcase that interventional radiologists are involved in stroke care certainly at a minimum at centers that have both a neurointerventionalist and a peripheral or body interventionalist they can provide good outcomes and good quality yeah, well, my current practice, I, when I came down here to Miami, the group I'm currently working with, we have three neurointerventionalists now, and we have actually two body IRs who uh, help cover stroke call. And I have had the opportunity to watch them perform procedures, and these guys are great. I mean, they do a really solid job. They can uh, really perform some complex cases to include tandem occlusions and have great outcomes. And this is, you know, me coming as an outsider into this group and being like, here's something I've been talking about. And now I'm actually putting my money where my mouth is. I'm working with people who are doing this. And it's fantastic to see people doing a great job and great patient outcomes. Absolutely. And I think that, you know, as I mentioned in my more recent experiences, seeing different practices, and there are a lot of these practices that maybe are mixed, you know, neurointerventional and interventional radiologists, or even some uh, that I've seen that are only interventional radiologists, again, providing stroke care and especially access to care. And again, with really solid data, quality and tracking and the outcomes, you know, I think that's ultimately in the realm of stroke and certainly other diseases and interventions. That's really critical. So it's really good to see that to your point, you know, sort of the practices that are out there, you know, are reflective of what we believe is happening. To shift gears a little bit, going along the lines of both this recent paper, but also a bit back to kind of education and opportunities, what do you think are current sort of barriers to interventional radiologists, you know, either starting to get involved in stroke care if they're not already involved or future trainees being involved in stroke care? Where, where do you think those kind of barriers or obstacles lie? Well, I think there's really three groups of people when we, when we talk about this. As you kind of alluded to, we have our trainees. There are some who are at those sites where they have the opportunity to scrub on in neurovascular procedures during their training. And I think it's fantastic. I think more and more programs are starting to look at what the options are, opportunities are for being able to do this. And that's great. Then we have our, I'm going to go from the easiest to the more difficult. Then we have those practitioners who have been practicing and we've run into those regularly when you and I have done the stroke course together. And there are some people with a lot of experience and, you know, they're there kind of getting their eight hours of CME. And, you know, we have some great lectures that we've been able to line up and just really get them the updates on what's the latest, greatest going on. You know, like things we discussed this year with Mevo and posterior circulation strokes. And, you know, we had some fantastic presentations from the people who are from our faculty. The biggest challenge I think is really those people who went through their training and didn't get a lot of experience and want to or need to because of where they are to get the experience to do stroke. And I think that's really probably one of our biggest groups to get the challenges because where are they going to get the hands-on training? Where are they going to get the experience? Through the stroke courses, we're able to provide the cognitive and we're even able to provide some hands-on in the models and the simulators. And as those get better and better, it gets closer and closer to taking care of an actual patient. But it's really getting that experience, treating patients, getting the hands-on. And I think that's really where one of our biggest challenges is. And 
perhaps proctoring, teleproctoring may help alleviate some of those challenges. It's not going to fix everything as we know. One of the big areas really is industry support. And that's one of the challenges, as you know, that we faced for a really long time. And it's how do we manage to get our faculty members trained? And I know this is an area of consternation for many. We have seen it come and go. Something you mentioned a couple of times, you know, including in this sort of last line of questioning, uh, and I know you have interest in, which is use of simulation and simulators. Can you tell us kind of where, where you think things are and where they might be heading? I think there is simulator technology is something that I've been very interested in since the beginning. You know, seeing the first simulators where you could push a catheter and a wire and on the screen, you were actually performing a endovascular procedure. It was something that was very intriguing. And over the last 20 years, the simulators have really improved significantly even to the point where you're starting to get some of the tactile feedback um, when you're performing procedures, when you have a patient, let's say, with not the straightest forward vascular anatomy, there may be an aneurysm hiding in there, plus a type 3 arch. And when you're trying to push and reform these catheters, it's amazing the haptics, the tactile feedback that is now possible when you're doing this. What would be fantastic is if we could finally one day get to the point where it's as realistic as training for a flight simulation. If you use that paradigm, you look at, you know, when pilots get in a flight simulator, it's that good that it can take the place of actually having been up in an airplane. If we can get to that point with simulation in medicine in general for interventional procedures specifically, that would be a huge step forward. 25 years ago when I had, when I was in the army and I had residents, we were able to have a animal lab and I actually took all my residents to the lab before I ever let them touch a patient. And we would spend all day, I would spend all day with three or four residents and we would do three or four workshops. There were like 10 or 12 residents every year and we did everything. We put filters in, we took them out, we stented everything, we put embolics of every flavor that we had available. You know, we did all of that stuff. And if we could transition that and, you know, move that over to the point where we're using simulators to do all of that before they even start treating patients, that would be amazing to get to that point. Yeah, I agree. I, you know, I, I did have, you know, access and use of simulators during my training, you know, fellowships in particular. And, you know, even to look back, that's more than 10 years ago compared to now, the advancements have been really tremendous. You know, I know this year at the stroke course, we did have simulators there and just to see those cases and kind of look at the haptics, the latest versions of things, you know, has really shown a lot of progress. And, and it does make sense to your point about looking at other industries like pilots. Use of simulators clearly has, has value. There's a lot of data around it. And, you know, looking across the pond, if you will, in Europe, I know that, uh, and you and I, we've talked about other models that incorporate use of simulators in part of their training. So I think there's really a lot of potential there. Again, maybe not just specifically in stroke, just really across the interventional spectrum, but certainly with stroke in particular, there's a lot of potential there to be able to do simulator cases or even maybe as an adjunct to your actual daily clinical practice. Yeah, I think we're going to get to that point where you know, we will be able to take the CT angiogram, the MR angiogram, or, you know, even if it's not a vascular procedure, the imaging, patient-specific imaging, feed it into the simulator. And then you can actually practice on your patient before you ever perform a procedure. You know, it's not always possible for emergent cases like stroke cases, but let's say you had a hard time, you know, a very challenging time doing the case. Well, maybe you have a little time in the background and you go back to your tool set and go, okay, what could I have done differently? What can I try next time? You know, I tried this catheter, didn't work so well. well. Let me try a different catheter. And I think as the simulators grow in power and we're able to do things like that even faster as, as far as bringing patient-specific anatomy or imaging into the system, we're going to be able to try a lot of things very quickly. Even something as small as by the time they're getting your patient set up, if the imaging data could move over to the simulator, you could figure out, okay, which catheter do I need to use to get up into this terrible looking arch? 
you know, something as simple as that. Yeah, I, I agree. In fact, you know, I did a, uh, a stroke case, you know, last night, a 97 year old patient, of course, type three arch, carotid loops, you know, all of those sort of aspects. And it was a tough, tough clot to deal with. And this morning, you know, as I'm rounding, dictating the case, et cetera, you know, I, I exactly thought that, that it takes, of course, time and cases and experience to be able to tackle that kind of a case. But, you know, I kind of thought that what a shame in a certain sense that people don't have the ability to go through 20, 30, 50 simulator cases and get that kind of a tortuous, difficult, challenging anatomy type of case as part of a simulator kind of session to be able to see which tools they need, how do you push, what feels good, what doesn't feel good, that sort of thing. So I kind of look at it, even even in kind of ongoing practice and doing cases that would be really nice, you know, even if there's a portable version of a simulator to be able to go back and say, here's what went well, here's what I might be doing differently the next time around. So I think there is, you know, hopefully uh, some advancements that can come there. Well, imagine taking that case that you did last night, the DICOM image set, and then we have a course, you know, as part of one of the courses, you feed that data into there. And then one of the trainees or somebody who's attending the course gets to spend an hour with you one-on-one -on -one fighting through that case, but it's in a safe environment and just trying all sorts of things. I think that experience would have a lot of value to it, to be able to do that somebody who's less experienced working basically with a mentor, you know, or a faculty member in a course setting where you have an hour, hour and a half, you know, maybe even longer. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that to that point, as far as training opportunities, use of simulators, flow models as well, being able to do that in that kind of a setting, I would love to have you do that case and I learn and see, well, what you would have done differently and, um, you know, what did you do that I also tried, that sort of thing. Because in a certain sense, doesn't matter how many you've already done, you're always learning, you're always iterating and proving, hopefully, that, you know, you can do those cases again as, as you know, efficiently, as safely, as effectively as possible to ultimately get good patient outcomes. So uh, I agree. I think it would be great, you know, to be able to take those kind of cases, import them into a simulator and spend time, you know, re-reviewing it, working with a mentor, phoning a friend, whatever it might be, to hopefully extract as much information, knowledge, you know, hands-on type of experience with those kind of cases so that you're that much better prepared for the next one. Yeah. I mean, you know, imagine doing the case with just aspiration, you know, try a couple different aspiration catheters, then, okay, I'm going to try it with this case with the stent retriever. And, you know, how does this go differently? Or even just the system that you use to get up there. What's going to be your guiding catheter? What's going to be your internal catheter that you use to select off the arch? There are a lot of different variables there. And, you know, we all have our go-tos. You know, there are certain cases we do and we just tell the techs, especially in the middle of the night, just go with my standard setup, you know, and they put it all together and the standard setup works most of the time, but every now and then you get in there and you realize, yeah, that wasn't such a great idea. And now you're switching out things and trying to figure out what would have worked better. And if you had the ability to go back and try it again, some other different way, or as we talked about earlier at a course in a course setting. And what do the other faculty do the case and go, okay, let's see how this person does it. Yeah, absolutely. And, and for me going to courses or even doing the phone a friend, you know, what would you try? Have you tried this? Did you think of that? That's one of the biggest values. You know, I, I think back and I sort of tell this story to a lot of different people because it just was kind of a very simple, but extremely helpful thing I learned, uh, was from Jeff Carpenter, you, I think Dave Sachs, a few others, but basically people who I knew had a lot of experience, had tried a lot of things, uh, suggested using a VTech catheter. It's a diagnostic catheter. It's just slightly different shape than I'd used before. And I heard that from a few different people and I said, sure, let me try that. And that has been one of the biggest positive changes for me in terms of doing stroke cases. It's a simple change in a sense. I always envy when I don't have it around, but at the same time, you know, I realized that that helped me in a tremendous way. And it was probably the cheapest tip I've ever gotten in a sense. Yeah, no, I mean, and, and again, as we talked about earlier, I'm happy we're starting to meet in person again, because those hallway conversations that you have at are fantastic. I mean, it's, it's amazing the amount of things I've learned just sitting around chatting with people. You know, it's like, hmm, I need to try that when I get back to my lab. 
it'd be even better if I could try it in a simulator first. That's right. Yeah. You know, because there are so many tools and products out there and uh, you may not have access to all of them. And it would be, you know, really nice between simulators and flow models to try different tools, different setups, different catheters, shapes, et cetera, uh, and then see, you know, maybe there's something that is better for the setup you'd like. You know, maybe it reaffirms that, you know, your, if you will, standard or your go-to, hey, that works pretty well. I think that's, you know, kind of another nice advantage of using some of these other technologies. Well, and I think just doing cerebral vascular cases in general, switching from a femoral approach, which many of us grew up with, to a radial approach. I mean, there's a lot of advantages, I will say, for stroke. I still do a lot of cases from the femoral approach, but there are other cases that I've started doing more from a radial approach. Recently worked with uh, one of the body IRs who got consulted on a epistaxis case. We went from a radial approach. Over these last few years, you know, you mentioned radial access, for example, but you know, what are some of the things that you've seen, that you've tried, that you've changed in your stroke practice? From the equipment standpoint, there's really, I've tried some of the new catheters and things that have come out. And I think that there's a place for some of them. I have to admit, I'm still waiting for that, that next quantum leap. Um, you know, every now and then, you know how that is, you get your hands on a new piece of equipment. You're like, wow, where has this been all my career? Yeah, in the stroke world, there are catheters that have been improving. We have catheters with beveled designs on them to help ideally increase trackability and aspiration ability. We've had other catheters that are very soft and easy, you know, in theory, easier to advance than the previous generation of catheters. I think things are evolving. I will say that uh, as we've started doing the medium vessel occlusions, my techniques have changed. You know, very early on, I did uh, a lot of stent retriever thrombectomies. I will say that moving, as I'm moving more distally in the M2s, the P2s, even the A2s, I've started using a lot more aspiration and uh, a lot less uh, stent retriever. And that may change again when we have new designs coming out in the stent retrievers. I mean, look at Europe. They always get the new toys before we do. But uh, there are some interesting uh, stent retriever designs that are coming out and hopefully we'll have those available here in the United States to treat those clots that are recalcitrant. You know, we've run into those where you try the aspiration, didn't work. Try the stent retriever, didn't work. Um, and then you're kind of just sitting there, okay, now what do I do? And tools keep changing. You know, we've all tried, I'd say we all, but many of us have tried, you know, even uh, the dual stent retriever technique. I haven't done it very often, but it makes me real nervous just because it's a lot of hardware that you're putting in these very small vessels that are floating in fluid. But we, we keep pushing the edge because we're trying, ultimately, what are we trying to do? We're trying to help our patients. And we push harder and harder because we have come to realize that the early trials, it's funny to say early because they were only, what, seven years ago, um, and look how far we've come. But we're trying to do more and more for our patients because we're realizing that, okay, M1 was a good place to begin, the carotids were a good place to begin, as uh, was the basilar artery, but now we're moving more distally. And so new tools are coming out. You know, We're kind of trying things that in the smaller vessels, the things that may not have worked well initially in the larger vessels are actually maybe a better idea. And I think it's a game in progress. As I said, for me, I've started using more aspiration as I go more distally. What's your experience, Ben? Yeah, likewise. You know, it is, it is interesting, you know, to your point to think that, you know, it was 2015, International Stroke Conference was in Nashville that year, and it was just two years after all of the quote-unquote negative stroke trials. And, and again, all of it is less than a decade, these a big paradigm shift from supposedly intervention doesn't help to, wow, intervention is definitely helpful, standard of care, and then pushing the envelope. Uh, so yeah, like, you know, in your experience and mine has been similar, pushing the envelope in terms of going after more distal lesions, medium and distal targets. Uh, I have likewise moved more towards primary aspiration for these targets and, you know, I've had good success with that uh, over uh, stent retrievers, at least in my personal experience. Um, definitely pushing the envelope in terms of going after those with maybe a larger core infarct or some of these, you know, low NIH patients that, you know, we don't quite have all of the data as yet, but seems like things are moving in a direction that 
these patients will still derive benefit. Uh, one of the big concepts that for me has changed in terms of how I think or look at cases is kind of this concept in around uh, rank and shift. You know, when you look at the trials, as we know, they look for 90-day outcomes of zero to two in most of the trials as being defined as a good outcome. But, you know, this concept of, well, what if you can take somebody from a uh, otherwise kind of terrible natural history of maybe a modified ranking of five or six and shift them? Maybe a, a three is not so bad after all. And so that's kind of been another way that I think I've shifted the way I, I sort of approach, you know, stroke cases and a willingness to try. I don't know if that's anything that you've experienced as well. Yeah, I, I think my group, the other interventionists I work with, we have started going a little bit more. And, and what I kind of try and make clear to everybody is we are happy to try and help our patients. But I think it's important to remember, you know, and I hate coming back to this, but it's outside the guidelines. And that and that's one of the real challenges. You know, the, the protocols are just being put in place right now to do these trials to figure out should we be doing these things, you know, really what is good. We think that we're doing the right thing for our patients. That's why we do it. You know, at two o'clock in the morning, we're not getting up just to come in and do a case, you know, and have a good time. We're, you know, we're coming in because we think we can really help our patients. Um, at the same time, it's important for people to understand that this is currently outside the guidelines, but, you know, we're pushing the envelope because we want to help our patients. We want to try and make them better. You know, I think that's an important thing to discuss, you know, because uh, the basic guidelines, those have been around for a while. We know what they are and we employ them routinely. But as we push more and more, we have to be judicious about when we do it. And I think it's important also have important discussions with not just the other caregivers, but more importantly, the families. I mean, we have our other healthcare providers and it's like, can you guys do that? And it's like, well, sure we can. It's, it's not a question of can I, it's should I. And that's really one of those things in medicine that we always have to balance is, is this really in the best interests of our patients? I mean, the early data suggests that it is, and that's why we do that. And hopefully when these studies come out, we won't have uh, results like IMS-3. Yeah, I think that's a very good point about guidelines and standard of care, if you will, uh, straightforward type of cases. You know, they present in six hours, they have an MCA occlusion, that's standard of care. If there's no family present, you know, if the patient can't consent, we move forward because again, that's standard of care. But I think a good point about discussing, you know, with the team and especially the patient and the family, at least currently out of the standard of care type of cases, you know, what are the risks and benefits, but also, you know, in a sense, tailoring it to the patient. You know, I had a young patient several months back uh, who had an isolated P2 occlusion and really kind of just a inferior quadrigenopia and but that visual deficit, you know, was certainly something that was significant for her. It definitely would have meant the difference of, you know, her daily life, driving, et cetera. And, and she worked uh, in a field where she needed that vision, you know, wasn't going to be acceptable. And so being able to have that discussion and, you know, the case went well. And to your point, I mean, I can go in there and I can get the clot out. I feel pretty confident of that. Question is, should you do it? And, you know, in that case, we had that conversation and moved forward. But I think that's always important to bear in mind is that as we potentially are pushing the current envelope and maybe a few years from now, it will no longer be the envelope. It's well within guidelines. But I think as we do that, we should be mindful and have those conversations and just be honest that, look, some things are not per se standard of care, but we think there's a benefit. And what would you like to do? How would you like to proceed? I think that's a, a good way of looking at it. You know, I wanted to shift gears um, and think about going back to sort of the, the trainee side of things. You know, you've mentioned cerebral angiography, for example, has come back into the fold as far as expectations within interventional radiology training. But what other things do you see or know about or kind of anticipate as far as for those in training? You know, what things should they be thinking about or looking out for? In IR in general, it's become much more of a clinical specialty. And I think the emphasis has changed there. And currently where I am, we have residents in the program and they'll ask me, so, you know, even med students, interns rotating through and it's like, so what things should I focus on? And I, and I almost, you know, it's almost a cliche and I want to go everything, but it's really focus on everything clinical. 
you know, you're going to get plenty of radiology training. You're going to get plenty of training doing procedures. But it's, I think, you know, for radiologists, I think one of the important areas is to get, you know, especially for the young trainees, get the clinical training that you can, you know, the, the actual time in the ICUs, the time in the floor, as painful as it may seem, if you really want to be an interventionalist, you have to know how to take care of your patients as well. One of the more important aspects, um, really for the young people going through training is get as much of that as you can, because once you get out of training, it's kind of hard to go back. I mean, in my case, I was very fortunate. And I went back 10 years later and did my neuro training 10 years after I finished my body IR fellowship. And it was like a sabbatical for me. Um, it was actually a fun experience. I went from being a chief of a, you know, the IR service at a level one trauma center to I'm just the fellow now. But most people don't get that opportunity to just stop what they're doing and go back and train for a year and get to completely shift gears. So that's, you know, that's one of the things I always tell the trainees is, get as much experience as you can. You know, if you're on surgery, go to the OR, see what's going on, see how the patients are being managed, learn as much as you can, because once you get into the radiology portion of it, you're going to see enough images. You're going to, you know, you're going to go through your rotations. You're going to do that. When you're on your interventional rotations, you're going to get your interventional experience while you're there. But it's those other things that are at the time may not seem as important that really, I think, become much more important once you finish training, you get out and you start practicing. Yeah, I agree. I, and really good advice, particularly like with some of the surgical specialties that we interact with. And of course, with interventional radiology, it's every surgical specialty that we will interact with. And, you know, having an understanding of what it is that they're doing, some, some idea, spending time in the operating room, I think is really outstanding advice. I know I did a lot of that throughout my training. And it helped me tremendously, you know, to see and understand, you know, from a surgical perspective, what's relevant, what's the anatomy they're looking at, you know, what things should I be keeping in mind? And it, I think it also helped me be better at radiology. For example, with watching during my, my neurointerventional fellowship, going to the OR and spending a lot of time watching clipping cases, you know, really helped me better understand sort of the angiographic anatomy, because I think there are differences in the sense of how you look at things for potential endovascular treatment versus surgical treatment. Uh, and I'll never, of course, clip an aneurysm, but I you know, want to be able to better understand you know, what are some of the features that perhaps make that aneurysm more amenable or a better candidate for clipping versus you know, an endovascular treatment. So that was tremendously helpful. So I think that's a good piece of advice. Well, I think that's, I think one of the challenges nowadays is really to work and reach out and get to know the other specialists. I'm old enough that I went, when I went to my radiology training, I had to hang the bone board and then take the films down between readouts that was, you know, before packs. And the benefit of that time period was that we had all the films. So everybody had to come down and talk to us. And unfortunately I saw packs, how it disrupted those conferences or impromptu discussions that you had at the readout at the reading board don't happen anymore. They may happen if your hospital is a multidisciplinary conference, such as tumor board or the trauma board, where you get all the different specialties in together to talk about stuff, but that's on a monthly basis. And it's not on a, what used to happen on the day-to-day -day basis. And I think really reaching out and establishing those relationships with your other specialists is really important because then you see where you can help them. They appreciate what you as an interventionalist can do. And then it allows you to kind of really understand what's going on. So everybody's speaking the same language, you know, whatever area you're going to get into, whether it's interventional oncology, prostate embolization, neuro, stroke, you have to understand the lingo, so to speak. You know, there's certain terms we use when we speak to each other, and it allows us to communicate very quickly with what's going on with the patient, what needs to be done. And you need to work really on establishing those relationships with the other specialties. And I think nowadays it's a little more challenging to do that. You actually have to reach out because as radiologists, we don't have the benefit of any everybody coming to us anymore because we don't, we don't forward the films the way we used to. And so I, I think it's a challenge, but I think it's very uh, beneficial for your, for the practice. Yeah. I think, I think a really good point that shift, you know, technologic disruption with PACS, you know, has had, of course, a lot of advantages. I mean, look at the technologies now where we can pull up 
you know, these stroke CTs and now other ones on our phones. You know, we can, you know, do that, make a quick decision and figure out if we're coming in at two in the morning. But to your point, at the same time, there's more and more disconnection, you know, unless there's an active effort otherwise, but there's more disconnection to the varying clinical specialties from the reading room. And I think that that, you know, is something that certainly, you know, interventionalists, you know, probably not just keep in mind, but I think on a daily basis really, you know, make that effort to sort of go against that trend, um, you know, have more of those interactions. And I think exactly to your point, establish and cultivate those relationships so that, you know, who to call, they know who to call, whether it's review films or work on a case together, whatever it might be. I think that's, you know, again, solid advice, especially for those in training or junior, you know, I think that's the good way of approaching things from a, you know, just a day-to-day practical career aspect. I mean, it shouldn't be a surprise that an interventionalist is in the ICU. You know, I mean, I, I still go out and I round and, you know, I stand and laugh and people are like, are you lost? What are you doing up here? And it's like, no, this is kind of what we do. And, you know, but again, that's where you meet your clinical colleagues at the bedside sometimes. Yeah, absolutely correct. Uh, and that's what's been really thrilling to see, you know, even being a bit removed from training, but to see that that's continued to evolve. And now with the IR residency programs, you know, to see that really, in a sense, that's the expectation. It's no longer that it's, it's unusual. It's really, that's the norm. That's the expectation. And, you know, to see this certainly in the neuro and stroke space, you know, this potential, we have some of these pilot sites and I think things have been going well from my understanding, but, you know, to be able to see somebody doing six years of IR residency and then another year of neurointerventional and spending a lot of time, you know, on the other related clinical services and rotations, you know, I think that's tremendous to see and will produce a lot of really you know, well-trained and well-rounded interventionalists. Oh, I'm, I'm definitely excited, you know, for the future. I've had, had some young med students in the, you know, residents come to me and they're like, oh, so, you know, what do you think the future looks like? And I think it looks very bright. I kind of have to remind myself that, you know, we had these same discussions about 20 years ago, 25 years ago, and here we are today. And Things are still moving forward and uh, there's a lot of neat stuff going on. The young interns, residents coming through uh, radiology, interventional radiology specifically, bright kids. And, you know, it's fun to work with them. They're excited about what they're doing. And uh, I'm looking forward to what the next, you know, decade is going to bring because I see how much has happened just in the last couple decades. And it's, it's just amazing. Yeah, I agree. I, I, I look forward to you know, where interventional radiology will be in even just five, 10 years from now, I think it will be this well-rooted, clear clinical specialty. Others will no longer, I think, view it as the kind of quote-unquote special procedures <laughs> kind of service, you know, uh, and, and, and that was around even, even do parts of my training, you know, that was around and, you know, kind of not just the changing of the name or the branding, but really in a, in a real practical sense. It's just establishing that interventional radiologists are clinicians as anyone else is on the floor. You know, we're there to help patients, help manage them. If our technologies allow us to do something minimally invasive, that's great. In some cases, we may say that, you know what, this isn't, you know, the right option. Perhaps that patient truly should go to the operating room, but to be able to render that, that opinion in a consultative way, and, and then of course have that opinion respected from the fact of, well, this is another clinician weighing in, not just simply somebody looking to do a procedure. Yeah, I think that's really important. You know, during my career, I've had opportunities at certain times to collaborate with other specialties. And it, you need obviously the right mix of personalities to do that. But when different specialties collaborate, we do some great things and, you know, patients really benefit. I mean, that's in the end, what are we trying to do? We're trying to help our patients. And it's uh, when I've collaborated with my surgical colleagues, my medicine colleagues, you have all these different viewpoints and then you come up with a plan. And sometimes the plans are really unique because you have some new ideas and you just have some fantastic outcomes and it's, it's fun. Totally agree. You know, the collaborative approach is, it's always, I I feel more enjoyable. It's really helps to sort of 
reaffirm that patient-centric approach to, to what we all want to do. And yeah, sometimes you can come up with some really creative solutions, again, to ultimately help the patient. So that's really, I think, the, the best way to do it. And, and really, whenever possible, is you know, what we should all strive for. Before we sort of close things out, Marty, any closing thoughts as far as um, interventional radiology, stroke, anything that you want to sort of pass along? Any thoughts? Well, I always have to remind myself, I stand on a lot of other people's shoulders. I was very fortunate to have some fantastic mentors throughout my, and teachers throughout my career. And I still continue to meet, meet people every, fortunately at the meetings, you know, in person. And these people who are kind of legends in the field who are so giving of their time and willing to continue my education, even though I've been doing this a long time, uh, I'm still learning. You know, and, and it's just amazing to hear from these people with even more experience than I have because they just have so much to offer and teach. And those who are kind enough to uh, share that, I greatly appreciate it. And, you know, I hope to be able to continue sharing with residents, you know, who are in training with other junior attendings as I keep going on through my career. And because it just, I find it very rewarding. And I think there's a lot of interesting stuff going on. I think, you know, with the new training paradigm with the IR residency and now these other possibilities with alternate pathways for neuro IR, I think it's going to be very interesting to see what the next five, 10 years bring. As I said, these uh, young kids now who are just extremely talented go through their training and become young attendings. That's, that's going to be really exciting, I think. Very well put. We stand on the shoulders of giants, you know, those who came before us, everything that they've done for the field to help train, mentor, ongoing mentorship, I think is a really important thing. I think, you know, something I know, uh, like you, you know, I take advantage of and I think that's, you know, certainly something that we want to help continue to perpetuate. You know, SIR has, you know, their mentorship program as just one example, but, you know, a lot of different things, you know, as we talked to in parts of the conversation today, you know, things like teleproctoring. That's another way of getting some mentorship, some help. And so I think there are a lot of tools. I find this podcast, for example, is really a, a great resource, you know, for, again, ways of, of finding mentorship, help, advice, a lot of really great resources that are around. So an exciting time. And, you know, certainly I think uh, a lot of exciting times ahead. So to close things out, thank you for your time today. You know, thanks for coming on and you know, having a chat with me and, and, you know, I think uh, we'll look forward to hopefully further updates in the future on this podcast. Thank you for having me, Vanya. And as always, it's been great working with you and I look forward to working with you in the future. Likewise. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, direct message us at at underscore backtable on Instagram, Twitter, or LinkedIn. Backtable is produced and hosted by myself, Aaron Fritz, and co-hosts Chris Beck, Sabine Don, Michael Barraza, and Ali Behetti. Our audio team lead is Karen Gannon, with support from Caleb Hodson, Josh McWhorter, and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz. Article and transcript support by Taylor Robinson. And Delaney Aguilar. Social media and PR by Anne Dang. Intro and extra music is Ripperoo by Skeptic Moon. Find us on Spotify or at local live music venues in New Orleans, Louisiana. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.